Welcome to Modern Aikidoist Podcast. Please help by liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast if you're watching this on YouTube or BitChute. These are all free and help out a great deal. Word of mouth is how shows like this reach more people who are interested. Another way you can support this podcast is by way of a PayPal tip jar. You can leave a donation of any amount you like or set up a monthly donation just like Patreon or Subscribestar. Only I don't make you pay for my content. I only invite you to contribute. There's a link in the description. I sincerely appreciate your interest and support. The subject of today's podcast applies broadly to all martial artists, not just Aikidoka. Negotiation is something which Aikido practitioners bring up constantly as the preferred method of resolving disputes, being far preferable to letting conflict escalate into the physical realm. In my more than 40 years among martial artists, law enforcement personnel, competitive fighters, and all manner of people who have notable physical prowess, I have encountered very few who saw no value in using negotiation before solving the problems with physical force. By very few, I'm talking like less than three. That is among hundreds, if not over a thousand. Today's podcast is about the relationship between your martial arts training and the art of negotiation. Almost all martial arts instructors give lip service to negotiation, but few are familiar with the art itself. There is a great deal more to it than merely remaining calm and staying talking. The perspective I'm going to look at today is the relationship negotiation has to violence and self-defense. The assertion that some martial arts encourage skipping over negotiation or de-escalation is not well-founded, and I would say it's totally false. Unfortunately, many Aikidoka take on a smugness about Aikido being superior to other martial arts in that they would always keep their conflict resolution from becoming physical. I disagree with this attitude for a number of reasons. My main objection is that such an attitude reflects both arrogance and naivety, which is a very dangerous combination. It's certainly true that negotiation plays a huge role in dispute resolution and can be used to de-escalate a situation before it turns violent. Counting on fighting skill and overlooking verbal cunning to protect yourself is not a wise strategy. It is true that being good at negotiation will make it very unlikely that you will need to use your physical prowess. It's no guarantee, however. Your physical skills are needed when either you are not presented with the opportunity to use your negotiation skills, such as with an ambush, or your negotiation skills fail. Those efforts might fail due to no fault of your own. It also pays to remember that it's very difficult to negotiate from a position of weakness or vulnerability. It is far easier to negotiate a peaceful outcome when you're not facing a disparity of strength or power. One of the classic traps fighters and martial artists of all types fall into is overestimating their capabilities. It's the trap of overconfidence. The same holds true to negotiation skill. You can easily tell yourself that because you are kind and benevolent, lacking aggressive intent, that your negotiations will all be successful merely because you are being nice instead of being a jerk. This is overconfidence. Negotiations can fail for a variety of reasons. Some of those have to do with your own failure to negotiate successfully, and some have nothing to do with your own performance. Negotiations can fail because they were designed to fail from the outset. That may sound odd, but I'll get into that in a bit. This is usually a good time for an example, but the thing about violence is that it takes on so many various forms that it's impossible to pick a scenario which covers even a majority of conflicts. The difficulty lies in the complexities of human interaction. But we have to start somewhere, so let's go with one of the most common examples people tend to envision. That is, a mugger who threatens you to give up your wallet. He wants only one thing, and the conflict will end immediately upon giving him your wallet. That is a real scenario, so you cannot dismiss it. 
However, there are many more scenarios which are not as easy to sort out. In such a scenario, it may very well be that your best bet is to just give up your wallet. Is whatever you have in your wallet worth risking your life over? I think most people would say no, of course not. Very quickly, things can go past this simple scenario though. What if the mugger decides he wants more than your wallet? He can change his mind on the spot, or merely have lied to you when he told you that the wallet was all that he wanted. If you gave it up eagerly, how eager would you be to submit to something more? This may be the reason he decides to take more. There is no simple formula to sort out such an exchange. One thing to keep in mind is that when someone has sunk to the point of threatening violence upon you, you're dealing with someone without morals or ethics. You are dealing with a savage. If they are willing to intimidate or threaten you, they are certainly willing to lie to you to get what they want. What does this have to do with negotiation? Everything. How successful can you be negotiating with someone who has an evil motive and will lie? Spotting lies and deceptions is a crucial negotiation skill. How good are you at spotting them? Do you train or practice this skill? How well will you do at this skill in a highly charged situation which looks like it could result in physical violence? Having been in quite a few situations like this, I can tell you, being cunning, quick-witted, and creative with problem-solving is pretty easy without pressure. With pressure, it's extremely difficult. Without practice, the chance of success is very low. Reading people, thinking on your feet, and finding peaceful solutions while you are fearing for your own safety are more than most people can handle. Dojo training doesn't build these skills either. Even scenario training doesn't adequately simulate situations well enough to build solid skills in this regard. The saying, there is no substitute for experience, is absolutely true here. When we are in a very peaceful state, imagining a potentially violent encounter, it's easy to think that merely avoiding being assertive would be enough to avoid violence. This would be true if the violence that we are worried about is only the self-generated variety. Self-defense is almost always about encountering someone else who's not as benign or as peaceful as we are. Then what happens? If we think that merely not being assertive or acting respectfully will protect us, that's not exactly true. Granted, you will be far less likely to encounter violence if you're not acting like a jerk and being disrespectful. There is another aspect to consider. There are predators and thugs who look to prey upon the passive and those who appear weak. Nature's predators, such as lions and wolves, avoid the stronger and healthier prey. We can only speculate as to why exactly that is. One hypothesis is that the weak prey are merely easier to catch. All animals, humans included, are inclined to target low-hanging fruit over fruit which is harder to get. The other hypothesis is that even animals understand that there's a physical risk of injury when taking down prey. In the wild, injury can mean your death. Humans have the advantage of modern health care, but subconsciously we still have primitive programming deep inside of us. Most, except for the completely insane, have a certain level of self-protection instinct which urges us to avoid physical risk as much as possible. Human predators are just like all predators. They don't want to fight or risk injury. They are looking to take what they want without a problem or resistance. It may seem like I've drifted away from the subject of negotiation, but I have not. And here's where it connects. It is called the interview. When a predator approaches a potential target, the decision is not yet made to present the threat or attack. The predator is assessing whether or not the target is going to be an easy mark. Imagine a lion approaching a herd of caribou. He watches how they move to pick out the easy prey. 
A street criminal passes over many potential targets and chooses to approach only those who appear to be viable targets. When they approach to start a verbal exchange, that's the interview. They are getting a handle on how easy this mark will be to threaten. These approaches often seem very innocuous and innocent. They are meant as a disguise to set up the surprise when the true motive is revealed. Just like the lion who waits in the tall grass, unseen until the caribou gets too close. By then, it's often too late. From the target's standpoint, they never realized danger was close at hand. Many victims will often say, I had no idea what was about to happen, or I had a feeling something was not right, but I had no indication that I was about to be attacked. This is your self-protection instincts trying to alert you. That's a whole nother subject, but suffice to say, listen to your instincts. You can do this in negotiations as well. When what is said to you seems like there is deception, there probably is. When there is deception within negotiations, you are dealing with someone who is negotiating in bad faith, and that is dangerous. You are being manipulated. The interview is a probing method to assess the viability of a target. Once that is established, the interview can shift into a manipulation stage. When that happens, you are being maneuvered into a more vulnerable position with less chance of escape. The predator knows that sooner or later you will realize the predicament you are in and will look to escape or fight. Since he doesn't want to fight, he wants you to see no viable chance to escape or resist. Victims who have gone through this process may have felt that at many points they could have talked their way out of the situation, but that's not necessarily true. The reality was that they were painted into a corner by a predator. The fact that they were non-assertive and benevolent probably made them more attractive prey. Perhaps they could have avoided the incident by how they comported themselves in the interview. This does happen, but not by projecting passive behavior and other signals which make you look easy to manipulate and exploit. I mentioned earlier that it is difficult to pick a particular scenario which describes violence because there are so many. Then I picked one and described it. That being a predator who searches out a prey to exploit. There certainly are a ton more, so let me take on an entirely different one. That being the random encounter type of violence. This is when the aggressor had no advanced plan of starting a fight, but it rose out of a spontaneous situation. This is where negotiation may have the best chance of diffusing the conflict. In fact, the odds of experiencing this kind of violence are much higher than the predator type attack. Approximately 80% or so of criminal violent encounters happen with people the victim is familiar with. The attacker is someone they know already, whether it's someone they have just met in the last few weeks or someone they've known for years. In these cases, negotiation and how you deal with people has a far greater influence on whether you end up in violence or not. Not being a jerk will go a long ways towards a peaceful life. Being able to successfully resolve disputes with intelligence rather than force is a valuable skill. I don't think there's really any good argument to that point. One of the most important times for good communication skills, which negotiation is, comes when it's time to establish a boundary and you need to enforce it. People will always be imposing on you, and you must set boundaries for what behavior you will accept. Quite simply, this means saying no at some point. You are free to determine when that is. One example of the need for setting a boundary is with someone who always wants you to come to their house and do work for them for free. Until you say no and don't show up, you will essentially be their slave. You might be willing to give them a hand once in a while, but that is your choice. A more stark and serious example is date rape. If someone doesn't say no, an assertive person can think that they are agreeing to sex when in fact there is no active agreement. 
I realize that that is a deep topic, but the point I want to make here is that it is crucial in such a situation to communicate a boundary. It must be clearly stated when someone crosses it. In any situation, when you establish a boundary and someone ignores it, that should be a huge red flag, probably with a flashing light and a siren. It means you are dealing with someone who doesn't respect you and doesn't care if they run roughshod over you. It is particularly telling in the date situation I just described, but it certainly applies to all manner of negotiations, from relationships to business dealings. One of the most important words in negotiating is the word no. It is the most powerful word in the English language. As you think about negotiating, consider how powerful it is. A good negotiator will present a no in a way which is not aggressive, so they can ease down any escalation it may cause. Consider from a self-defense standpoint. Saying no will either result in an aggressor backing down or escalating and attempting to take whatever it is they want. That is why we train, so we can say no and are ready to enforce it. That no might be someone who wants to victimize us, the ones we love, or innocent people. Such people need to hear no and have that no enforced. A very easy trap people often fall into is assuming everyone else is civilized. When someone is willing and ready to use violence against peaceful people, they are no longer civilized. They are engaging in savagery. Just because you have not encountered behavior like this does not mean that it doesn't exist. Victims are often caught off guard because they have never seen it or dealt with it before. Savage behavior can occur with normally peaceful people whose tempers flare due to circumstance, or their behavior is tainted by drugs or alcohol. No matter what the source is, we must address the behavior. Absolutely use dialogue and negotiation to avoid violence, but should you notice it having little or no success, realize you are likely dealing with savagery and a physical exchange is imminent. When you reach that point, your training will need to kick in. Hopefully it included position and placement so you never have to fight back from a position of extreme disadvantage. Your training should have included that part too, because things don't always go as planned, and we might be starting in a worse position than we would prefer. What do you think? Please share your ideas in the comments if you're watching this on YouTube, or go to the Facebook group Aikido the Marshall Side and post a comment. The Spirit Aikido online program is now live and there are more than 80 videos in the program, with new ones being added every few days. Subscribers get access to video training and mentoring to techniques and training methods I've adopted from other martial arts to make my Aikido more practical. There's a link in the description section. I invite you to check it out. I always enjoy hearing from listeners of the show, whether through comments or questions. Thank you all for sharing your interest. Enjoy your training.